Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I am your co-host, Dean Detloff. And I'm your other co-host, Matt Bernico. Hi. Hi. Uh, bringing in the energy hot already. I appreciate that. Um, it is getting late, so uh, we'll keep it up here. Um, it's bad out there, folks. It's bad news all week this week. And I feel like that's how we're always starting yeah. the show off these days. It's always bad. It's like <laughs> COVID's bad. Politics are bad. It's all bad. Dean, what's something good that's happening in your life? Yeah. Tell us about that. What's good? What's good? Okay, I started playing a game that you told me to play called Ollie Ollie World, and it's saving my life. It's a, an extremely simple uh, game. Um, well, I shouldn't even say that. It's uh, deceptively complex. <laughs> it's a game about skateboarding, a side-scrolling skateboarding game in a world that is basically Adventure Time, but is not Adventure Time. And uh, it's great. It's really a good, soul-warming, heart-warming game to find. I agree. Uh, I've been playing it. It's been very fun. And here's the thing about pe- about video games. Um, some people... Okay. <laughs> this is such a bizarre thing, actually, to say at the top. But um, listen, there's, a, there's an ongoing debate within people who think about video games. Should video games be about playing a game, or should they be about telling a story? That's the conversation that video game academics mm-hmm. have. And what's cool about Ali Ali World is that the story, not important, and in fact, in most, uh, most, uh, most talking... Uh, Portions of the game, you get the opportunity to skip it. The cool thing about Ali Ali World is uh, its approach to game design is like, can you make, can they make this game feel good for someone who plays mm-hmm. it? It's like, and I think that's what it does so well is it just feels extremely good. It's very cathartic. It releases all the endorphins. Uh, your serotonin is flowing, and it just feels it's just a very good feeling game to play. I love. Yeah, that. everything about it. The sound is good. The colors are good. It's all good. It's a good game. I've been listening to the soundtrack just as I work during nice. the day, and it's uh, it's very good. It's awesome. <laughs> All right. Just some great, like, synth pop. Man, I could talk about this game for a long time, but let's not. Let's talk about the bad things. <laughs> well, the good things. No, no, no. All right. You you gave it to me. Uh, I gave you one good thing. You can't just steal my good thing. Give us at least one other good thing that's going on. Um, let's see. One other good thing. Um... Let's see. Oh, here's a, a, a Breath of the Wild update. My son <laughs> is now to the point where he is uh, he is fighting and beating Ganon all by himself oh at the very end of the game. So he's uh, he's a big boy. He's really grown up. He's beating the bad guys all by himself, and I love it. Wow. He'll be graduating <laughs> from college in no time. I know. He Okay, so in Breath of the Wild, there's a very tricky mechanic where you can deflect um, deflect someone's shot with your shield, and it's a very satisfying thing when you can get it done right. And uh, I've seen him play Breath of the Wild for, I guess, like a year and a half. And he's he's now he's an expert at it. He's so Whoa. good at it. And uh, he can be Ganon and all the robots. <laughs> and he never stops talking about it. It's great. <laughs> I love it. That is fantastic. Well, this has been our brief video game podcast. <laughs> the Magnificast plays video games. <laughs> um, but yeah, let's get back to the bad news. So uh, war in Ukraine. That's going on this week. And Matt and I should have recorded this podcast earlier in the week, so we didn't have to talk about it. But here we are um, at the end of the week. <laughs> we really got ourselves on that one. Yeah. Yeah, if we <laughs> a day sooner and uh, it wouldn't have been a problem. So now we're compelled to talk about it. But also, uh, it is an important thing to talk about. And I feel like I've been thinking about it probably like everybody else a ton. So hopefully we have some things to say. Um, you know, the simple part, I think, is that war is bad. It doesn't matter who's doing it. It's not good. It's a bad thing. Um, there's some nuances maybe to draw out about things like violence and all that kind of stuff that we've talked about in the show in the past. But at the end of the day, uh, war hurts regular people more than anybody else. And that's my hot take right at the top of the hour here. 
It's a good hot take. You know, people, I've, I've seen people coming out of the woodwork on Twitter posting the most wild things to say about <laughs> about the war in Ukraine, and I don't have time for them. I'm busy. <laughs> I'm, I, I just, like, I just don't care, I guess, is, is maybe what it comes down to. Whatever your weird, like, um, your weird Marxist Leninist conspiracy theory is about Vladimir Putin or whatever, I don't care. <laughs> I, I don't, no matter what you tell me about him, I don't think this is a good thing. I think war is bad across the board. Fair. Um, intercapitalist wars are bad and there's nothing you can say to change my mind about that yeah same um, but that being said it's true that there are some uh, complicated things to parse out and I don't know we're not experts in geopolitics very few people are <laughs> and probably don't even want to listen to them anyway uh, but there are some geopolitical complexities here and I think that actually some really interesting voices in the Christian peace movement have actually given us some ways of talking about them. So we'll we'll rely on those in a moment. But I think really the thing I want to talk about most in this episode, the thing that I've been thinking about is the need to really rebuild an anti-war movement or a peace movement, however we want to refer to it, in the countries that we live in, specifically in the United States and Canada. Uh the anti-war movement has historically been an extremely powerful engine for social change, and it has bled into lots of other stuff. So, you know, people show up at a demonstration to oppose a war, and all of a sudden they're also learning all kinds of things about uh, whatever it might be, racism or uh, uh, socialism or imperialism or all these other kinds of things that are happening. And I think it's important to see the anti-war movement, um, first of all, as ex an extremely important thing because war is bad. And also, as a historically very important vector of like people coming together with lots of different interests from lots of different groups united around the cause that war is not good. So what better time to talk about the importance of rebuilding uh, the anti-war movement than when there is a big war happening in Europe and the United States and Canada are both uh, involved in their own ways. Yeah, I think that's about right. The anti-war movement, I, I mean, it's it, it fluxes, it, it ebbs and flows. There were times when it was really massive, and there are times when it's very small, like right now. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think that, that Christians always have a, a certain place within that conversation. I mean, um, if, if anybody should care about people, it's Christians. So like, there's something really specific, too, that uh, Christians should be contributing to this conversation. So, yeah, in this episode, we're going to take a look at some of that and maybe try to make the case for why Christians and people on the left in general should just uh, really be more invested in um, an anti-war position. Yeah, and talking about what that means, too. Um, Christians, in my experience, are very good at having positions, not very good necessarily at uh, <laughs> that's true, that's true. <laughs> at organizing um, around those positions. Not always true, but, you know, also partly true. Um, I think it's also important, too. So I made this tweet uh, about basically this point that, you know, it's really important for Christians to start rebuilding those anti-war movements in the U S and Canada. And I've been, maybe I shouldn't be surprised at this stage, but I have to confess out of my own naivete, I have been surprised at some of the responses to that tweet, uh, especially the ones who are like, I don't know if you've heard, but the war is not in the United States or Canada. It's in Ukraine or like, you know, the U S and Canada are not the ones invading Ukraine right now. And I don't know, like, whatever, uh, they are involved for sure. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But um, and, and of course, not involved in the same way that Russia is involved. Um, so I'm not trying to do a both sides here in the same way. But uh, I think really the key point is that peace is a global project. Um, that is a really important thing to recover. And I want to try to drive that home a lot in this episode that 
you know, uh, what's that famous Martin Luther King quote that uh, an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere? Um, sure, I think you yeah. can, you know, really scale that problem up when it comes to, uh, you know, people actually dying in wars and so on. So uh, mm-hmm. war is a global problem. Peace is a global challenge. And uh, anyway, all that to say, I'm just I guess I'm just defending my tweet to a bunch of people listening to this podcast. But it's <laughs> just important <laughs> to recognize that what we do in our own countries does have major ramifications for everywhere else in the world, especially in the heart of imperialism. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the United States and Canada, they are not directly involved at this point, but it's also not like they aren't involved in some way, right? Like drafting sanctions and whatnot. There's all kinds of there's all kinds of ways in which the um, this this particular situation in Ukraine is like a global a global situation, right? It's, things are entangled enough that I think that is pretty mm-hmm. good. Well, let's maybe do a little quick review of what people have already been saying about the war um, in Ukraine. Uh, and I think, I don't know, I've been tracking like different Christian organizations, obviously, and what they have to say. There's been a lot of good statements from religious orders. The Sisters of Mercy had a good one. Um, I don't know, tons of them. Probably if you know about a religious order, they've said something about Ukraine and good for them. Um, genuinely, (laughs) but, uh, I think the best one I've seen so far actually comes from Pax Christi, which is an international Catholic movement for peace. Um, there is a really strong Pax Christi US movement that is full of very good folks. Um, shout out to John Noble if you're listening to this podcast. Uh, <laughs> love John, friend of the show, John Noble. Um, anyway, uh, Pax Christi released a great statement. And they do a good job, I think, by, uh, I guess, like pulling out not just the fact that war is bad, but again, really attending to why the why it matters to say that in the United States. So They say a bunch of other stuff. They talk about Russia specifically. So um, just to put that on the table. But then they have this important uh, passage where they say, Pax Christi U.S. urges the international community to stand united against the invasion of Ukraine and in support of diplomacy and dialogue to bring the crisis to an end. We urge the United States and NATO to refrain from pursuing military responses and to pursue solutions that address the context and complexity of the root causes which gave rise to the crisis in the first place. It should not be lost that in addition to Russian aggression, the expansion of NATO with the proliferation of bases, the continued manufacturing of weapons of war, and the reliance on security upheld by military power has played a significant role in the events building up to the current crisis. This war is an additional evidence of the failure of policies predicated on the threat of violence to deliver the peace and dignity the human family deserves. Uh, there's a bunch of other stuff in there that you can read, but I just pulled that one out, I guess, to kind of keep on building that case that it really makes a difference that we come at this issue from our own countries, trying to figure out how we are entangled in the issue and involved in the issue and figure out what the pressure points are that we can actually maybe push on. And I, I really appreciate Pucks Christie's attention to saying, you know, we can't just kind of shift the blame uh, completely to Russia, even though Russia is the one bombing uh, Ukraine. Um, but we have to really have a, a much bigger and more historical view of like the conditions that create those contexts in the first place. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. It, it's a helpful map, right? It shows us where we are in the conflict, but also like the ways that we are embroiled in it. And, and great. Um, cool. Another really good statement I saw earlier today was from the Poor People's Campaign written by Liz Theo Harris and William Barber, two, um, two pastors who are, you know, leading the movement of poor people in the United States uh, to confront uh, 
the inequality of our country in particular, they have a really um, strong way of talking about the problem of militarization in the United States. They kind of pick, are picking up the threads from like the, the, the Martin Luther King Jr. Poor People's Campaign, uh, who recognizes militarism as like one of like the core problems in the United States society. And I think that, you know, they're probably right to do so. Um, anyways, they released a really good... Um, a really good statement about today and something I really appreciate about it is that it doesn't really dwell on the international politics of the situation because they are super complex and kind of ever evolving. And instead of talking about it in particular, like the Pax Christie one does, um, the poor people's campaign statement instead just kind of pivots towards a moral language and kind of painting a, a moral vision for like what an anti-war movement might look like. And I think that's cool. I mean, it's, it's really helpful. I think both sides are actually really helpful. You know, one, um, one that recognizes and maybe says things very explicitly and then one that kind of paints a bigger imaginative picture. I think uh, they're both pretty welcome in my book. So I'm going to read uh, two parts from the Poor People's Campaign statement here. Uh, so it starts off like this. As always is the case with war and violence, poor and low-income people lose the most. In a war over geopolitics and oil, poor people become pawns as autocrats play dangerous and deadly games. This act of war is in part the result of a Christian nationalist project developed by Vladimir Putin and supported by the likes of Donald Trump and his followers. We'll talk about the Christian nationalist part kind of at the end of the show here, but it is actually significant in this case. Mm -hmm. um, and then it goes on to say a little bit later, we stand with the people of Russia who immediately took to the streets at great personal risk to nonviolently protest this war. We stand with the people of Ukraine who have been resisting the drive to war and nuclear annihilation. We must pose the question, what if those of us who stand for peace around the world refuse to cooperate with evil? Millions of people, fathers, mothers, grandparents, and children could nonviolently lock arms like thousands are doing in public squares of Russia even now and build a nonviolent movement for peace, justice, and democracy. Um, I think this is very cool. I think in a lot of different ways, it recognizes, um, I think what we said at the top of the show, right? War is always bad because war hurts the people who um, have like very little means to do anything about it. Poor and low income people are always the people who are losing the most in war. And they're the people that are going to be, you know, forced to the front lines to you know fight in some circumstances, especially as we're seeing in Russia and Ukraine. And that's very interesting and awful. Um, but also, you know, it's just like um, they will end up their, their lives will be disrupted. Their businesses and places of work will be, um, you know, destroyed, damaged. All kinds of things happen um, it, during like, wartime situations to people who are poor and low income. They don't afford the same um, possibilities to escape, to run, to, you know, just move somewhere else to immigrate. All these things are, are oftentimes not possible. Hmm. So I think that's a, a good uh, a good part of a good argument of, for like why war is just like across the board bad and, and why we can just reject it outright, I think, especially in these like sort of intercapitalist situations. Okay. So there's that. And then the second piece that I think that's really fascinating is that like, what if we just didn't? <laughs> is what it suggests, which is on the one hand, extremely utopian. But I think that in, you know, when it comes to like giving a moral language to these, I think, uh, I don't know, the, the utopian has a particular place in these. Like, um, what, what if we just chose not to do war? What if we just chose not to sit idly by um, while our governments, whether they are involved directly or not, um, create economies and political structures that completely are just like, you know, <laughs> OK with like shoveling, sh shoveling tons and tons of, of dollars into buying more missiles or something? What if we were not OK with that suddenly? What if we organized uh ourselves in such a way where we decide that's not an okay society to have. Um, and that's good. Yes, we should. 
So I think what's cool about this um, this thing from the Poor People's Campaign is that it, it suggests that like um, the people that we need to look to are the people who are already nonviolently resisting. Um, you know, violence and nonviolence are complicated ideas. We've talked about this podcast a lot, but that's where this is kind of drawing its uh, energy from, right? There are already people that are opposing this war. And what if we just decided to do the same thing and oppose this war and all wars and all, you know, all structures of militarism? And uh, it's a good word. Yeah, I think so, too. That emphasis on organizing, especially, I think, is what I find missing in so many statements on uh, the war in general. Right. Like, uh, I, I don't know, it's it's pretty hard to write a statement about the war in Ukraine that ends up sounding too bad, I guess, <laughs> just because it's like yeah. easy to be like, yes, it's an awful thing. And we stand with the people of Ukraine, et cetera. And, you know, those sentiments are good. Like, I, I think it's actually important to express those sentiments. But even more important than that is to really do the hard work of thinking through what's the action item attached to that? What's the uh, what's the kind of way we need to think if we actually want to do something about that? And it's so easy and tempting to, I guess, reduce our action to having the right take or the right opinion or, mm -hmm. I don't know, arguing about it in the correct way on the Internet. And uh, it really makes a difference to frame everything in terms of, you know, what if we built a movement that was capable of confronting this in a real significant way? That is exactly the right way to think. Yeah, totally. I mean, even organizing is is still too diffuse yeah. as an idea. But it is in the right direction, right? Um, I, I don't know. I don't expect anyone's statement about the war to lay out a strategic plan <laughs> right. for organizing or something. That's not the nature of press statements. <laughs> but um, but still, I mean, it's it's a step in the right direction. But yeah, I mean, exactly. We should build a movement that can uh, that has the ability to articulate those particular types of strategies, though. Like, how would we? Um, how would we confront those types of powers or how would we confront the entire like system of, um, of militarization? Yeah. Uh, well, I want to turn to that in just a minute, but I think before we move to the organizing piece, um, the more important piece for sure, maybe it's worth just really, really briefly articulating kind of a last note about uh, why this matters in the U S and Canada in the context of the Ukraine stuff. So, you know, I mentioned the Pax Christi statement has this really great uh, note about uh, the the kind of conditions um, leading up to this, right? The the expansion of NATO, um, the kind of paranoia that gets created in Europe through that kind of stuff, um, and in the United States through through NATO. And I guess I, I don't know if you're like around the left long enough, you learn a thing or two about NATO. But if you're not, probably don't. <laughs> I probably wouldn't have. Um, and it might be worth just doing an extremely brief like explanation of why that is important, like why Pax Christie, for example, might go out of their way to say that. Um, so, OK, let me say right off the bat, I think it's pretty obvious like Russia has a kind of outsized role to play in the conflict, right? That <laughs> they are the ones who invaded Ukraine. And that's true. That was a bad idea, not a good thing. And um, the scales are maybe tipped in that direction in terms of like bad stuff, <laughs> bad, bad actors. Uh, but at the same time, um, what's important is to recognize that something like NATO, which is a, a military alliance between the United States and Canada and Europe um, and a handful of other parties, I guess, uh, it existed initially as a way of confronting the Soviet Union in Europe um, or kind of deterring or or creating a potential front for war with uh, Russia in Europe. 
And after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was kind of an assumption that, you know, if Russia is going to get integrated back into the world economy now that it's no longer a big spooky communist country, then uh, they shouldn't like the West also should not uh, kind of conscript countries on the Russian border into uh, NATO. And that was sort of a, a deal that was brokered or made. And over time, that deal hasn't really been honored. And Ukraine is one more uh, potential kind of, you know, uh, NATO candidate. And because it borders Russia, Russia is very nervous about it. So it's basically like a big game of capitalist chicken that's going on here, right? It's like uh, you have the uh, the Western powers or the NATO powers um, who are kind of using, they're like propping up Ukraine as this uh, uh, poor kind of, state that uh, should be drawn into this alliance to confront Russia. And then Russia is trying to paint Ukraine as, um, you know, basically like a proto-fascist state that uh, they have to defend themselves against. And like the weirdest part is, as an all war, there's like kind of actually a little bit of truth on both sides. There are there has been historically in the last, uh, well, less than a decade, um, some pretty severely frightening fascism building in in Ukraine, like uh, very brutal anti-Semitism, extremely bad neo-Nazi movements. And the U.S. and Canada both were um, sometimes in an indirect way and sometimes even in a direct way supporting those kinds of things. Uh, so, you know, like the basically the point I'm making, I guess, is paranoia <laughs> is kind of the the underlying cause here. And that is very bad. Um, so all that to say, I guess, uh, I, I think I just felt we should deliver a little bit on the, the thing we've hinted at, which is that there are these kind of underlying causes that are not reducible to like Putin being a bad guy who's doing a bad thing, which, again, to be clear, he is a bad guy doing a bad thing. <laughs> but uh, just to say that if we're going to rebuild something like a peace movement in countries like the U.S. and Canada, it matters that we also take the time to try to figure out, well, what is the unique role that they play um, how are they kind of stoking um, the the situation? And, uh, you know, how can we kind of confront that? How can we deal with those uh, paranoia creating mechanisms or whatever? Yeah, I think that's good. I mean, I think that's actually a really great explanation, though, for why um, people in the U.S. should actually really be care like really care um, about an, an international anti-war movement. Right. Like, I don't know, this conversation has been happening in our uh, Patreon Discord channel <laughs> kind of on and off for the last few weeks as we've, as we've all been waiting to see like what's going to happen in the situation. But yeah, I mean, um, like you said, Canada and the United States have both directly and indirectly um, acted in training um, uh, Ukrainian sort of paramilitaries, some of which are um, Nazis <laughs> really explicitly, right? So I don't know. Uh, to me, this, this is a... a it helps strengthen the case when when you learn more about the things that your government is doing. Um, I think it's it's easier to just be like, this is bad. Right. <laughs> and it helps too to avoid like, OK, people absolutely 100 percent without qualification should stand in solidarity with the people of Ukraine. No doubt about it. Totally. Um, but it's important too to recognize that, like, we also have to pay attention to the the different contradictions that exist in Ukraine by virtue of all this awful paranoia, right? And like, yeah, try to be mindful, I guess, about uh, how that messaging goes out. Contradictions is the exact right word. There's a lot of moving parts here. It's very complex. <laughs> it's very very complicated. The the moral language of uh of being anti-war because it hurts people who really have like no real stake in it. I think just to me seeing. It rings the most true yeah. in these situations, yeah. right? Like, of course, of course, there are like the the sides are complicated for sure. 
Um, but I guess like when it comes to like whose side do you want to be on? And I think in, in both cases, uh, I guess it's always just like the people who are going to be hurt the most. Like mm-hmm. how do you sort of stay in solidarity with the people who have the most to lose? Yeah, exactly. All right. So that is the view at a thousand feet, maybe of that. And uh, going back to what I said is the most important point, the organizing point. Um, maybe we could turn a little bit to that. So, you know, it's wild because the United States in particular is, I think you can say pretty fairly, the most militaristic society that has ever existed on the face of the earth, right? Uh, More weapons than anybody, more weapons technologies than anybody. It can blow up the planet a bunch of times if it wants to. Um, Not a good situation. And yet, at the same time, Uh, It has been home to an incredibly creative anti-war movement and one that in some situations historically has been extremely powerful and effective at even forcing its own government to get out of wars, for example, most famously in Vietnam. Um, And, you know, uh, it has not always been successful as the United States is still going to wars all the time. Um, But it's important to kind of, I guess, honor that tradition of anti-war organizing in the U.S., And the same is true of Canada. It's a different conversation in Canada. I mean, really, we could do two whole episodes probably on it, but, um, you know, on on each country. But Canada is often seen as sort of a Pacific power, right? Like, doesn't get involved in the same way that the U.S. does, doesn't have these kind of imperialist interests. That's the brand that gets uh, spread around. But that's not quite true either. Um, Canada really likes making weapons and selling them to people uh you know famously like canada made a big sort of show of being out of vietnam um as a kind of active combatant but uh we were like in ontario canada was a primary uh producer of like agent orange right so like you know one of the worst weapons ever used in that war right so all that to say um this country too is not blameless. And also uh, Canada is home to a, an interesting anti-war movement as well, including one made up of lots of uh, uh, deserters or like people avoiding the draft, draft dodgers who moved to Canada, right? So there's an interesting tradition of all that here too. So I thought maybe one thing we could do, if we were thinking about how to rebuild the peace movement, uh, I think for me, whenever I think about big things like that, like what if we did this or that? What if we needed a new, a, you know, a, a revived labor movement or whatever? <laughs> I'm always like, well, I can't really start from scratch. That's too big. So <laughs> maybe instead we could kind of look to history a little bit and uh, think that through. Um, I don't know. How does that sound, Matt, as a way of getting some precedence, some permission? Yeah, I mean, it sounds great. I mean, uh, it, it's it's good, right? You, you want a new anti-war movement. Well, look at the one that we had. And then lost. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. Uh, I think you could say pretty fairly that the anti-war movement peaks in the 60s and even has a pretty strong uh, contingent in the 70s and some interesting mutations almost in the 70s uh, and then begins to wane in the 80s and really sort of collapses in the 90s. And uh, by the time you get to something like the Iraq War, you get kind of like a pretty solid uh, revival in in some respects, but not to the same degree or caliber. And uh, then again, you know, I think we're in a a low ebb period of all of that, Uh, a valley, I guess, of the anti-war movement. And maybe this will change some of that. My guess is probably not. Uh, People seem to have a hard time kind of drawing the links between why would I get excited about an anti-war movement when, you know, the U.S. isn't the direct uh, military power involved in the war that's in the news. Um, So we'll talk about all that maybe later on, but just to get to this history piece. So when we talk about like the 60s and 70s, um, that's where my brain always goes. I think really you get like, 
I always think of there are more interest groups than this, but I always think of three, which are there's uh, the labor movement in particular. And then there's you could call it like civil society organizations. So like the civil rights movement or anti-racist movement and like the student movement, all these kinds of like civil society organizations that are sort of, you know, bumping up against each other or kind of bleeding into each other, overlapping. And then lastly, just by virtue of this podcast, I guess, I always think about the emergence of an extremely strong um, Christian anti-war movement, Christian peace movement. So maybe we could talk through those a little bit. Um, I don't know. Where should we start, Matt? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Let's talk about labor. Let's do that. Good. I'm into it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, the thing, so somebody in, in the, uh, I, I'm just plugging the Discord chat left right <laughs> here, but uh, somebody in the Discord uh, asked about, uh, you know, have um, has organized labor been involved in anti-war movement or like uh, shutdowns and uh, strikes and whatnot uh, in response to like weapons manufacturing? And the answer is uh, yes. And it's happened in a handful of different ways. Um, I think the first time this is um, I'm breaking the chronological order that we're working through here. So sorry. <laughs> I think the first time I recognized this happening or I remember it happening or maybe heard heard about it was just as uh, I was starting grad school, I guess. But it was 2008. Um, and I'm sorry, this isn't grad school. <laughs> I was in I was a I was I was in a regular college. It doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, anyways, in 2008, um, this is during the Iraq War. Um, uh, like thousands of of dock workers um, in a May Day protest, they closed like 29 ports um, to to protest the Iraq War. Um, this is the uh, the ILWU, the International Longshore Workers Union which is um, an extremely militant and cool union, if you want to know about any of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're especially pretty, like, I, I mean, I don't know. There's uh, there's one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, and they are actually, like, separate for some interesting reasons historically, but not really worth getting into right now. Um, but the ILWU on the West Coast, um, they are, like, const- not constantly, but <laughs> that, that is a tactic that they use to shut down the ports. Um, and they've done it a few times. Um, and even some even some things like um, like like the Occupy movement had had some like um, synergy with them as well and shutting down the ports for for May Day, too, in, in, in past years. So um, that's the thing that's happened in um, our lifetime, my lifetime, at least. I don't know. If someone's listening to this that was born in 2008. That'd be surprising <laughs> to me. But you never know. Um, anyways, uh, that happened in 2008, but there's a sort of a longer history that, of that as well. Um, for example, here's a, a little blurb from Labor Notes that kind of just says a few things about this. The International Longshore and Warehouse Union, the ILWU, uh, represents 25,000 workers on the West Coast docks and has the reputation for progressive leadership, democratic procedures, and international solidarity. It became, in 1964, the first U.S. union to oppose the uh, the first U.S. union to oppose the war in Vietnam. And uh, during the 1980s, it supported actions against El Salvador's government and held a port protest against uh, apartheid in South Africa. So, um, I mean, there are other instances of this in um, American politics, but this is the one I would definitely point to if people were like, how has labor been involved in anti-war politics or anti-war movement in the past? Um, the ILWU shutting down ports is pretty iconic, I think. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a... Uh, a great example of the type of power that you really need to build, right? Do you actually want to stop militarism? Well, you need to um, employ 
or um, become involved with the folks who could actually stop that, like like physically, so that the weapons and the materials that you would need to build weapons can't uh, enter or leave the country. That is um, the first, <laughs> the first and perhaps most basic sense of obstruction uh, when it comes to uh, stopping militarism. Yeah, I mean, the longshore workers are so amazing in so many ways. Man, if you ever want to just get excited about a union, you should read about the longshore workers. That's the one. That's the one, (laughs) for sure. Uh, Amazing stuff on on lots of fronts. But yeah, especially on on war. Um, There are some really interesting stories of the longshore workers also like refusing to deliver goods uh, to like particular countries or powers or, um, you know, just like rerouting things. Uh, lots of very funny pranks that they can play um, just by virtue of their unique role in the production process. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's a good success story. I think it's also important to recognize that uh, labor often has not found its own voice in the war movement or anti-war movement. Um, you know, most famously, I guess, in like the First and Second World War, uh, the big anti-war movement was like the socialists famously did not go along with uh, <laughs> refusing to fight, which is too bad. Um, but uh, also, well, this is kind of in the weeds, but I guess I'll mention it because it has my synapses fired in my brain. Um, Paul Virilio, a weird philosopher we talk about on this podcast sometimes, a guy who wrote a ton about war and militarism. Uh, he famously was not a Marxist, and in part because he said the proletariat, you know, the, the one revolutionary class that Marx hitched his wagon to and thought that was the, the key, he said, Virilio said, uh, the problem with the proletariat is um, because of the logic of war and machines has kind of so, like, penetrated our society, uh, the proletariat is sort of conscripted into the logic of war in a way that it, like, cannot understand or hasn't really come to consciousness uh, about. And so in a weird way, the proletariat or the working class is sort of like uh, a bit of an organized uh, soldier contingent in itself, right? They make the weapons. Um, they don't really think twice about it. They get a paycheck for it. I always think about this when I look at like uh, Raytheon in particular, which is just on Twitter, which blows my mind. I can't believe we live in a world where Raytheon can like show its face on the internet and not just get like it's too bad. <laughs> yeah, cyber bullied every day. Um, so I don't know, do that if you're bored, I guess. But, uh, you know, Ra- yeah, Raytheon has like several accounts and they're constantly bragging about how like they're a great employer and people love working for them. And it's like, yeah, but what they love doing is making new ways of killing people. Very awful. Um, so Raytheon maybe is the most obvious, but like, you know, even the major, uh, labor unions, um, in both Canada and the U S typically haven't really come to that political consciousness that they should, you know, go on strike. Maybe if they're asked to make weapons or maybe they, uh, maybe people who are workers should make stronger demands about what they manufacture. And, you know, this is a a militant labor union that doesn't exist. So this is all kind of pie in the sky stuff, but it's just to say that, like, the labor movement is so kind of dormant in that way that uh, it's hard to imagine that ever coming back. But the longshore workers are uh, a testament to the the continued possibilities of that and, like, a great material proof of, you know, if we organized at the point of production, then wars couldn't happen because you wouldn't produce the means of making war. I, I think the Virilio point is actually really a really good, strong critique of um, <laughs> of Marxism. In a, it's pretty fascinating if you think about it, though. Right. Like just because because of the ways that uh, production is so like kind of interconnected within a capitalist political economy, it's such a hard thing to even. And and because you're so alienated from your labor. Right. It's like so difficult for you to even know like what your labor is actually producing in the long run. Right. Even if you're just producing like 
Well, like, for example, for years, my dad um, worked in a warehouse where they shipped wire places. And it's like, I don't know, where is all the wire going? Right. Like, <laughs> like uh, they sent some to the company that made slinkies. They sent some to the U.S. government. So, like, I don't know, you're making slinkies, you're making bombs. Who knows, man? Mm-hmm. It's just, like, such a wild thing. But, uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that is the... It, that if I was uh, if I was in some kind of like uh, heavy manufacturing industry and I was uh, in a union, that's the first question I'd be asking. You know, like, what are we actually making? Like, what are we doing? Yeah. Uh, if you want to to insist on having control of your labor means like I don't know, not not making weapons if you don't want to. Right. Which I mean, who wants to make weapons? I guess. But <laughs> um, it, you know, that's part of controlling your your labor. That's part of having a democratic workplace for sure. Yeah, there are some also, I should say, like, you know, the labor movement as a whole hasn't come to that consciousness, but like, there are factions of it that have and kind of really neat groups like um, the one I'm most familiar with is uh, Labor Against the Arms Trade. Um, Yeah. And it's what it sounds like. And uh, it's very good. There's one in the US too called Labor uh, Labor Against War and Racism. Oh, nice. Um, Just sort of like a, just a, you know, a nonprofit sort of uh, network of people who are in unions who are interested in anti-war activism. So like they exist and maybe like you said, right. They're a good Testament to like the role that labor has played in the past and like the, uh, a promissory note for what labor could do in the future. Yeah. But all that to say, anyway, uh, it is very important to think about labor and, uh, it's kind of historical relation to the peace movement and what it could be perhaps. Um, but it's also, as we said, a challenge. It's hard to revive that, especially if you're not unionized or your union is uh, maybe a bit slack. So let's see. Maybe we could pull out another group. <laughs> Christians would be the last group because they're the the maybe they have their own kind of unique things going on. Um, so I mentioned, you know, another kind of high point for the anti-war movement was the civil society organizations. So um, the civil rights movement was happening simultaneously as uh, the anti-Vietnam War movement was kind of happening and coming together. And it's really interesting to see how those two movements influenced one another. Right. So, uh, for instance, like Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, for a long time, didn't really speak out against the Vietnam War for strategic reasons and uh, eventually thought that wasn't tenable. Maybe we could talk more about that later, but important to kind of see that uh, these struggles are connected and at the most uh, like militant moment in U.S. history, maybe like the 60s through the 70s, when people were really, you know, able to get out there, like able to get in the streets and were willing to show up and, and do something. It was the recognition that these things are all tied together that was so significant, right? So like right now, you know, in the U.S. or in Canada, we have some really militant movements against racism And that's great. Very, very good. And there are sections of those movements that also recognize these connections. Right. So uh, it's not like that intuition is lost in kind of the logic of social movements. But with the absence of like a mass anti-Vietnam War movement and the presence of a mass anti-racist movement, we could say uh, the fact that we don't have those two things going on at the same time basically means you're kind of just like hoping that one of the mass movements will like start connecting some of the dots. But like. I don't know. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> so uh, important to sort of build those mass movements on so many different fronts all at once, which is exhausting. But uh, that's how they did in the, in the 60s and 70s. And I think it's the only way that it could really work. Yeah, I think that's right. That makes a lot of sense. All right. Well, let's talk about let's talk about the Christian part now. That's a big piece of it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in the 60s and the 70s. And I mean, even after that, too. But 
and before that even, <laughs> right? There were all kinds of um, pretty radical Christians who were interested in opposing war in one way or another. Um, Martin Luther King Jr., he was in the mix. He was out there. Um, uh, just today, uh, I read um, uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech called Beyond Vietnam, which is a really fascinating essay about um, uh, his his turn to be outspokenly against the Vietnam War. And it's pretty powerful. It's really interesting. There's a lot of interesting political analysis, and some of it uh, I don't think holds up, and some of it does for sure. Anyway, so people like um, Martin Luther King Jr. for sure are like important voices in, in, in just what you're saying, Dean, like the, the civil rights movement, but also how it ends up connecting to uh, anti-war movement. But also there's all, all kinds of other wild Christians out there, um, especially within what's called the Plowshares movement. We've talked about folks that are kind of involved in Plowshares in one way or another on this podcast before, like Daniel Berrigan. Um, uh, you, you know, but these are these are the groups of Christians. Um, I guess a lot of Catholics, a lot of uh, priests and nuns, and um, but but also Protestants too, uh, Protestant clergy and lay people, vandalizing or or disrupting what's going on on like military bases. Yeah, I mean, these are some of my heroes for sure. I think I've said on this podcast before, like really the the probably the most major contribution of U.S. Catholicism to sort of like the the big the big book of Christian lefty activism is the anti-war movement, right? That uh, really radical kind of pacifist tradition, um, one that has the courage to do things like uh, the Catonsville Nine, if you've ever heard of them, uh, which was the Berrigan brothers and a handful of other folks. Um, they broke into a uh, uh, an office where there were Vietnam War draft records, and they stole them, and then they burned them with some homemade napalm, and then they all eventually got arrested. Daniel Berrigan famously evaded the FBI by like bouncing around to people's houses for several months. Very fun story if you've never heard about it. So you can look that up. There's some good documentaries about it. Uh, but the real key here is um, at some point, you know, there was this kind of awakening, I guess, among certain Catholics who were involved in the anti-Vietnam War stuff and also involved oftentimes in the civil rights movement they sort of had this epiphany that, you know, war is a really bad thing. And if you want to confront it, maybe you have to confront it in these big performative ways, like uh, ways that have sort of uh, spiritual significance to them and also this material significance, you know, like literally burning draft documents is a very good thing. You can't really do that anymore. I guess they're probably all on a computer. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> you could burn computers. Yeah, you could burn computers. For different reasons. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, the point being, I guess, that it was also a, a way to, um, well, in the left, there's this kind of uh, idea that's often debated about whether or not these kind of isolated actions are strategically useful, right? Um, there's lots of different names for it. But uh, the idea being that, like, you go out, you do a big thing, you get arrested on purpose, or you kind of do something that just rattles the public. And then uh, that alone is kind of supposed to be like a public pedagogy or whatever. Um, the, the debate is that, like, certainly you can get people's attention. But if you can't integrate those people into, like, an organized program or an, or an organization with other folks, then you're just going to look like a bunch of weirdos. And I think it's true. Sometimes these people do look like a bunch of weirdos. <laughs> but <laughs> there are weirdos right. and they're very good and they had an effect on me for sure. Um, and in my own case, you know, they've kind of put me on a path to eventually finding more organized politics, I think. But uh, it's important, I think, to really highlight that in U.S. and Canadian Christianity, there is this incredible tradition of civil disobedience 
um, of uh, a really militant anti-war movement that is like willing to, you know, people have like put their their freedoms and their bodies on the line to say we don't want a world where there are things like nuclear weapons that can blow it up. Uh, we don't want a world where people uh, where people are drafted and they have to fly to a different country and like shoot a bunch of people and you know on behalf of our national interest or whatever. Like we don't want that, right? And being willing to say uh, that we're gonna go do that is really brave, and it's also a tradition that is still with us today, right? Like um, we have been hearing all the time about like the uh, the Kings Bay Seven, um, yeah, a bunch of folks who have carried on this tradition just in recent years, or you could think of like Jessica Resnick who, uh, um, her and Ruby Montoya, they, uh, did, uh, some property destruction with the Dapple pipeline. Right. And, uh, lots of stuff going on there. So the, the tradition is alive and well, but I think it's such a, an important feature that we don't often think about either that in the Christian tradition, there's this kind of strong militant anti-war, uh, piece that we could tap into the kind of energies of at the very least. Yeah, totally. Well, it's really important, I think. I mean, maybe like you said a minute ago, right? They they can be weirdos, but they are definitely are weirdos and we have to <laughs> we have to own it, I guess, for better and sometimes for worse, but I think mostly for the better. I think that uh sort of prophetic witness is something that's really inspiring um and pretty cool. Uh here's a cool here's an important quote from I think Daniel Berrigan on uh on the topic in general. This is from a 1970 book uh called No Bars to Manhood. We have assumed the name of peacemakers, but we have been, by and large, unwilling to pay any significant price. And because we want the peace with half a heart and half a life and will, the war, of course, continues because the waging of war by its nature is total. But the waging of peace by our own cowardice is partial. There is no peace because there are no peacemakers. There are no makers of peace because the making of peace is at least as costly as the making of war, at least as exigent, at least as disruptive at least as liable to bring disgrace and prison and death in its wake. Um, This is the kind of thing that I think is, I mean, it's powerful. And I think that there's, um, there's something right that in in what Daniel Berrigan's saying, it's also like a little overbearing, (laughs) (laughs) but, but I think, I think he's right. I think there's an analysis in here that we should probably pay attention to Um, that uh, like, I mean, just like, just like he says, war is total, right? War is total in the sense that like, in the United States, um, mountains of money are are diverted towards war and away from other things. Um, war is total in the sense that in the United States, money is diverted towards war and away from other things, right? It's people's full-time job to, to, to wage war and not just to wage war, but to study how to wage war. You know, you, you can you can go to, I don't know, like military academy and learn <laughs> learn all about the best strategies you can um, become a software engineer just to make apps that kill people and like control drones i, I don't know all of the all of this to say though just that like war is a full-time job of somebody and there's an entire like industry built around it so you have to think that you have to build at least enough power to stop that and that's a pretty uh, a pretty tall order right that's there's a lot of organizing to do there's a lot of power to build um I think that the uh, the language that strikes me as unhelpful is that uh, it's only our cowardice that's uh, standing in our way. I don't know if that's exactly true. Um, I, I guess maybe some of that's true. Our, uh, I'm willing to say I'm a little bit afraid to like uh, get shot or something. <laughs> but um, but you know, I, I think really more than anything, it's our it's our our. our um, just the lack of time people have to organize. I don't know. Like it is, it is people's full-time job to do war, but like 
it's no one's full time job to <laughs> to oppose war or, you know, it's a it's always your uh, it's, it's something that you do because you're really passionate about it. And it's just a, it's a hard thing to even wrap your mind around how total it is. Just like we were saying, right, you don't even know um, if you're if you're producing something industrially or whatever or even if you're if you're doing the cognitive labor of like coding or whatever you have no idea what your code's gonna be used for you don't know what your products can be used for like be because war is so total it's hard to even figure out how to oppose it in in a way that is as systemic and as far-reaching as war actually is yeah i think it's a good point too to recognize um kind of the i guess the, like like I don't want to use the word, the word human resources, but I guess that's kind of what I'm trying to say. Like the <laughs> the the imbalance of of human attention or like enabling mm -hmm. full time human attention on these kinds of issues, right? Like uh, the U.S. military is always going to have more people, more money than the peace movement is ever going to have. I mean, there are some people whose full time job it is to uh, to make peace. Like I think of um, community peacemaker teams, formerly Christian peacemaker teams, they have some paid staff, but not nearly as many as the U.S. military <laughs> will ever have, right? <laughs> it's true. Um, I, that's true. I guess that uh, what I mean to say, though, is that, like, you know, you can you can go to school and you can yeah. get a job in a, and have a career and, like, live your entire life, you know, contributing right. to doing war and making people's lives awful. Right. And killing yeah. people, right? Yes, and, exactly. And there's no... There's no similar track for Christian peacemaker teams. Like you're right. not gonna have like a pension. You're not gonna have like uh, I don't know a housing allowance to live in a city or something like you would yeah. if you're in the military. It's just uh, th there's a, a scale of difference that I think is worth noting. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's also important to note the change in material conditions here as well. So you know we were talking about some of these examples from history, and like mm. they're all very cool and interesting. Uh, but something that always sticks with me, like, I don't know, sometimes you read a book and you forget like everything about it except like a quote. And that is the case for me with this book called Revolution in the Air by Max Elbaum. It's um, kind of a study of like uh, radicals in the 70s, mostly um, and this kind of period. Right. And really, it talks quite a lot about the, the Vietnam War protests and kind of how they mutate and transform and everything. It's all very good. You should read it. It's a great book, a good history book. But the thing that really sticks out to me is. He emphasizes that like during that time, one thing that really made all that happen was the fact that wages and housing prices were correlated in such a way that like you could have uh, a single person in a house working full time supporting like two other roommates who live in that house who are organizing full time and don't have full time jobs. And like that is how the movement happened. Right. <laughs> like somebody volunteered to work and pay the rent so that two other people could go get everybody else excited about you know going down to the to the rally and now uh wages and rents are such that you could never ever do that again right. like you can't have somebody just go get a job for a little bit and support two roommates in a house in you know definitely not in an urban center for sure and mm -hmm. it matters that we recognize those material changes to our ability to organize too i think you know as a person now who is involved in organizing a lot like I often am, you know, everybody who does organizing work, I think you you have these days of like, oh, my gosh, how am I ever going to do this? Like, it's impossible to get all these people to do the things I feel we need them to do or like <laughs> I'm not doing my job right or whatever. Right. Like you have these kind of days where you feel like you're just kind of banging your head against the wall a little bit. Um, but it's often it's it's always been helpful to me to be like, well, 
uh, it was actually a lot easier to do this <laughs> like 50 <laughs> years ago, you know, and like seeing what we're working with now, um, the demands on our attention and all that kind of stuff. Like, I agree. Uh, maybe Daniel Berrigan could have talked about, you know, our cowardice being sort of a, a bigger piece in 1970. I think that there's some truth to that still now in 2022. But uh, there's also a lot of other things that have changed. And as we think about, like, what it would mean to do the practical work of organizing, um, that's really what it's going to take. Like, like uh, donating money to things like community peacemaker teams, right? Donating money to organizations like Pax Christi, um, allowing us to kind of build out a real staffing network that would allow people to do that full time. It's like there's a danger of professionalizing all these things. We have to totally. have volunteers yeah. and members like that is completely true and really significant but at the same time like you know it takes resources and uh there's a lot of resources being put into war all the time not nearly as many resources being put into peace and we have to sort that out that's right well let's talk about those resources really quick before we kind of wrap up the wrap the episode here because it's an important piece of the puzzle um as as we're transitioning away from like the, the historical aspect and towards like you know what does it mean to like oppose um oppose like militarization as a sort of societal logic because i think that is definitely what you might call it um there's a there's a word that i've learned lately that i think is pretty helpful for kind of understanding what some of this looks like um this is a term that i don't know i've i've heard people from um i don't know all over use it i guess but like it kind of comes out of the um again sort of like that sort of like civil rights era um anti-war movement like the martin Luther king era war anti-war movement um and i've heard people like listy harris and reverend barber they've, they've used the word too but it's war economy um so war economy is the the idea that like um you, you know like within the capitalist system right we have and we have a political economy <laughs> um where uh people are like earn wages and all that kind of stuff but the the war economy is like is the recognition that like so much money is poured into making war, just like we've been talking about for the last few minutes. So much money is being poured into like, yeah, building bombs, paying people at the Pentagon to, I don't know, fly airplanes over other countries. I don't know what people do at the Pentagon. Probably that. I have no idea. Um, but anyways, it's the idea that um, that that uh, doing war is like a whole industry within itself. and um, And that's also like part of the reason why, you know, resources don't exist for other social safety net kind of things. So um, I'm going to read this quote here from Liz Theo Harris, um, who is the, uh, she's the director of the Cairo Center and also the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, she says this, the U.S. war making budget is well over $700 billion a year. Um, and this was written, I guess, a little bit ago, uh, but it's still true. Um, Joe Biden just asked uh, for, I don't know, $700 plus billion for the Pentagon. So <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> Anyways, all I'm trying to say here is that that's still an accurate number. Uh, the the war making budget is well over 700 billion a year. That's more than the next 10 countries combined. 53 cents of every dollar in the federal discretionary budget. For comparison, when Donald Trump tried to kick 700,000 poor people out of the life saving food stamps program last year, it was justified by expected savings of 1 billion per year. <laughs> so uh, 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 cutting people out, off of um, off of food stamps, uh, it's only going to save you one billion per year. But the uh, 
the Pentagon, uh, the, the military budget is over 700 billion. So, um, not even, <laughs> not even justifiable. It's completely ridiculous. All right. And she goes on to say every dollar spent on feeding this war machine is a dollar not spent on housing, on healthcare, on education, on jobs, on preventing pandemics, on confronting the climate crisis in a country beset on searing poverty, gaping inequality, and widespread environmental injustice. The overblown Pentagon budget is not just a case of mismatched priorities. It's a war on the poor. Okay, there's a lot I appreciate in this analysis, and I think it's pretty powerful. Um, I think framing it as a war on the poor is exactly right. I mean, I don't know. It's a it's a war on other people. It's an it's a war economy. It's an economy that's um, built around giving uh, more than seven hundred billion dollars every year to the Pentagon, and um, in response, I mean, that means that um, money not being spent on on things that people actually need. So. I guess like I, I lay all this out because um, I mean, first of all, you can see the like the moral injustice in that, <laughs> that uh, people in the United States are, I mean, right now facing evictions, going hungry. They have no health care. They have uh, jobs that pay them a really crappy wage, all of this. Right. Um, and also climate change and all of that. That's just kind of like looming in the background coming to burn us all to death. Um, but, but even though that's the case, um, that's all fine. That's all justifiable. There's just not money in the budget for it. Uh, sorry. Well, maybe next year we can kind of like, uh, close that, close that inequality gap just a little bit. If we kind of, uh, can move some dollars and cents around, uh, meanwhile, every Republican and every Democrat will unproblematically vote yes, or nearly all of them. Okay. There's a few okay people out there. But nearly all of them will vote yes on giving the Pentagon over $700 billion uh, for their budget. And Joe Biden can easily get away with asking for, you know, $770 billion, whatever it was. And uh, people won't even bat an eye on it because it's just like the way things work, right? It's just that the, the economy uh, of the United States kind of has, uh, of the United States government has that sort of idea and ideology sort of built into it. Um, but, I mean, I think that kind of goes along with what we were just saying, right? Um <laughs> To, to oppose to oppose war to oppose the whole idea of militarism to oppose the idea uh, to, to oppose the like the system of, of militarism in the country means to try to figure out ways to thwart that particular economic move of just dumping money in a big pile mm -hmm. for people in the Pentagon to like I don't know make into tanks or whatever um so I don't know it's a it's not a uh, insignificant problem I guess is what I'm trying to say um it, it's just such a bummer right like uh people like Joe Manchin or whoever, right. They will draw out these, these long and tedious, like hand ring sessions where they, they cry on and on about how much it's going to cost to, to continue on the, the child tax credit. Right. And, and how actually we need to means test it. And, and we can't make sure that the wrong people get money. That would be so awful. Meanwhile, they are just going to like shove, you know, an, an unimaginable amount of money to, to people that want to build more guns and no one's going to cry about it. Mm -hmm. um, so confronting not only the ideology of militarism where that kind of makes sense, but the material reality where that happens and the political situation that makes that OK, um, that is also a part of the anti-war movement or it, it has to be right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe one way to kind of uh, sort of round out the conversation toward the end here is to say, like, it's important to get a sense of the scale of the problem. And it's also important to then think about how to do that practical organizing piece. I, I don't know. At some point we have to do an episode, I guess, just on organizing in general, but like, yeah. I think 
You know, I you mentioned earlier, Matt, that that can be a vague term, and I think that's right. So maybe I'll just kind of say a few things that might be a little more, a little less vague, a little more detailed, right? So, you know, like one way, for instance, if we wanted to really rebuild the anti-war movement, if we wanted to take inspiration from those things that we were talking about a little while ago, um, different kind of witnesses for peace and so on, and if we wanted to confront the gravity of the situation that you were just uh, laying out here, um, the material situation, we really have to think, I think, extremely practically about how to do that. So the way I always think about organizing is like there's lots of different features of it and they're all very important and you kind of have to like do them all at once, but you have to do them with a bunch of other people <laughs> or else you'll never get anything done. So, you know, one I think is education. That's like a major domain. And there's lots of interesting ways to do that. Like the thing you just read from Liz Theo Harris is a great example of trying to contextualize what does it mean for us to... Uh, spend so much on the military budget and not spend it on these other things, right? And just trying to make that clear for folks, like it's a war on the poor insofar as if you are a poor person or even a working class person for that matter, um, you know, you like, you can't uh, get access to healthcare because people tell you it's too expensive for the government to have it, uh, to offer it. But, you know, the government will spend all this other money. If you can kind of draw those connections out for people, I do think that that is like a major piece. So there's kind of a education or propaganda side uh, to organizing that's very important. And I think that is actually essential, right? It's great if people have basic graphic design skills, communication skills, you can make a little pamphlet, you can host a, I don't know, conversation at your church or <laughs> whatever, you're a pastor or teacher or something, right? Coming up with those kind of easy ways to educate is important. Um, and secondly is the mobilization piece really trying to figure out ways to get people out at like the U.S. consulate or get people out at the Russian consulate or, or embassy, right? Getting people out in the streets, uh, meeting each other, uh, saying what they are upset about. That is sort of the tried and true method of anti-war movements. If you can get enough people out in the streets, you can maybe start getting a hearing. Um, and, you know, I don't think everyone has to be a Daniel Berrigan. Like, I don't think that everybody has to break into, you know, a nuclear submarine facility and pour your blood on like a m missile warhead or something. I mean, <laughs> if you want to do that, That's cool though. yeah, I, I'll say that you're great and I'll tell other people that you're great too, but like, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> so, you know, it's important too to recognize that we also have to do that kind of mobilizing work. And to do that, it really takes investment in long-term organizations, like things with, infrastructure apparatuses people who know what they're doing like uh you know something like pax christi or christian peacemaker teams like organizations that already have experience doing that stuff and i think that's really the key right trying to figure out how you can connect a lot of people at once to the same kind of cause uh bring them in with their own kind of interests and like that's a lot of work in itself um, but uh, doing that kind of education side on the one hand and the mobilization side on the other, I always see those as kind of like the two basic prongs, at least, of organizing. And if you were going to do anti-war stuff, uh, even more, that's, that comes into relief, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we could talk about organizing for a long time, but I mean, that's basically it, right? Organizing is about um, uh, growing and moving a, a network of influence to, to do something that you want. I think that's at least a place to start. Um, but I don't know. I think 
I don't know. Uh, I'm trying to think of when the word organizing kind of became in vogue, and I don't really know the answer to that question. I mean, people have been talking about organizing forever, right? Uh, from from labor, from leftist politics, and so on. But I feel like it entered the sort of like <laughs> the popular consciousness maybe at, at the end of the the last election cycle when yeah. when Georgia won, and people were like, "Well, how did how did the Democrats get any wins in a place like Georgia?" And everyone was like, it's the organizers, stupid. <laughs> and, like, that's true, man. But, like, <laughs> organizing is a whole thing that takes a lot of people. That yeah. takes a lot of time and a lot of strategy. And, uh, yeah, it does warrant a larger conversation. But it, it is what you have to do. And, and, like, whenever you are educating people, whenever you're trying to get – you're moving someone to try to get them to do something, that's that's doing organizing work. Um, whether or not it will be effective is another story. But <laughs> some, something else altogether. Yeah. Uh, a good note. Well, okay, so we're kind of coming up to the end here, and I think that the, there's one more point that I want to make, um, especially kind of coming off this whole idea, right? There's there's um, There's been a historic anti-war movement in the United States, and it's very interesting and full of contradictions, but also full of very cool things and things that make me excited right now, even just thinking about them. Um, and there is, like, you know, the current state of things. If you think about the war economy and how much money is spent on um, on war and militarism and the whole like, sort of ideology behind it where people don't even really care that you're spending that much money on war and militarism. There's all of that. Um, but also, like, I, I think that there's something to be said about the role that religious people can play in these types of things. Um, yeah, I mean, throughout this episode, we've been talking about Reverend Liz Theo Harris and, and William Barber, two people who are um, – they're both, they're both pastors and different types of – Christian traditions and and also Pax Christi too. Another that's a Catholic organization. I, I think that it's really important to draw out that religious people have a really important place within organizing. Um, I mean, for a few different reasons, but I think um, just for a very practical reason that they are representatives of certain communities that have a commitment to care about things. <laughs> so it is great to figure out ways to activate those types of people, I think, for sure. And maybe something we can return to in the future. Though I, I guess I want to pull out one more thread of the current situation and like thinking about like what what does it mean to oppose um, this current this current war situation in Ukraine. And um, there is this element within it um, of, of Christian nationalism, that I think is really fascinating that I've been reading a little bit about today and uh, yesterday as well. Um, so let's see. I don't know if you've ever heard of Diana Butler Bass. You probably have. She's on Twitter. She's an academic, but she's also kind of like a popular figure. I like her. She's great. Um, for the most part, I don't know. <laughs> Un, I, I guess the, the critical support, I suppose. <laughs> Anyways, um, there's this really interesting write-up today in uh, in Esquire by uh, a liberal pundit. Doesn't matter. Anyways, he uh, he was writing about the Christian nationalist roots of the ongoing situation in Ukraine and in Russia, and he keeps he kept on citing Diana Butler Bass and some of her work on. Um, on Christian nationalism. I, that's one of her, I guess, kind of like core research topics when it comes to uh, religious history. She's a, she's a historian, by the way. I don't know if I said that, but I should have. Anyways, so this is a, a quote from Diana Butler Bass. The dream gripping some quarters of the West is for a coalition to unify religious conservatives into a kind of supranational neo-Christendom. The theory is to create a partnership between American evangelicals, traditionalist Catholics, and Western countries an Orthodox people under the auspices of the Russian Orthodox Church in a common front against three enemies, decadent secularism, a rising China and Islam for a glorious rebirth of moral purity and Christian culture. So there are some ways that this ties into uh, Putin uh, explicitly. And also, like, I don't know if you live in the United States or in Canada, 
take a look around you. <laughs> Not super hard to see how these things kind of uh, been playing out in the current um, resurgence of uh, of, a, of, a, of a different type of right-wing politics or, or a way that maybe right-wing politics have mutated over the last few years. Um, anyways, I, I'm, I'm drawing this point out here to say that in this moment, it's probably really important for uh, progressive Christians or just religious people of all varieties to, um, to think about that organizing work and what it looks like to do that in your own communities. Um, I, I think that uh, when it comes to Christian nationalism, um, Christian nationalism here is is referring to a, a type of right wing Christian nationalism, not like uh, the Maoist type or something. Mm-hmm. A, a, an important distinction that we make on this podcast and this podcast only. Um, but, <laughs> anyways, I'll just say it's it's important to kind of keep keep sight of that in the way that that um, the ideology bound up in Christian nationalism in the United States is not only a United States phenomena. It has sort of some purchase in different places, like I don't know, like in like in Russia, for example, and. Uh, as we're doing this organizing work, as we're thinking about um, the anti-war movement, as we're as we're thinking about how to, I don't know, confront these um, these structures and these ideologies, I think that we can't neglect the the moral voice of a type of Christianity that refuses um, right-wing Christian nationalism. So, just probably an important point to to throw out here at the very end. Yeah, and I mean one that is also recognized by the Christian peace movement of the past as well, right? Like uh, mm-hmm. you see that a lot in Berrigan's poetry, for example, uh, a kind of uh, uh, explicit attack on U.S. Christian nationalism for sure. Uh, we've talked in the past about Dorothy Zoela, this amazing German theologian, and she taught in the United States for a long time, and she coined this term Christofascism, which she used to try to describe the conditions in the U.S., Um, And uh, she was also a really staunch anti-war activist herself. So important to also carry that thread on. And it's good that you bring that up, Matt, that we can uh, recognize that Christians have some unique opportunities by virtue of our communities that we're part of, but also some unique responsibilities that like we have to confront Christian nationalism also kind of on its own terrain, which is, you know, our tradition. And uh, it's important to confront it materially, rhetorically, spiritually, biblically, whatever, <laughs> whatever, by any means necessary, I guess. But uh, yeah, yeah, totally. I, I guess I want to make it clear, too, that I'm not just like conjuring this as like a boogeyman from nowhere yeah. or something. I don't know. I've seen all kinds of really weird uh, right wing figures kind of coming out and talking up Christian nationalism this in this moment. Even yeah. uh, Steve Bannon the other day was talking about how cool it was that like uh, – that Putin has this sort of Christian nationalist vision that uh, doesn't make room for like people with multiple genders or, or or different gender expressions or different sexual expressions or whatever. And I think that sucks ass. Fuck Steve Bannon. Hate this guy. He's a bad one. <laughs> Christian nationalism in general. Um, right wing Christian nationalism. I don't like it. I think it's bad. And uh, I'll even swear about it. I don't care. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, you've got it really at the end here. Matt's coming in hot. He came in hot in the beginning <laughs> and now he's coming in hot at the end. Um, That's right. Well, I kind of fell asleep it. in the middle, but now I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, war is bad. We should organize a movement that says so loudly all the time and bug the people who are still doing it. Uh, you know, I, just here's the fine point I'll put on the end. Um, if you want to do something specific, I don't know, print off a bunch of posters and go put them up around town saying that war is bad. Get a bunch of friends together and tell them you want to <laughs> make a campaign that says, um, I don't know, what if we spent one seven hundredth of the budget on feeding people in the United States? Like, I don't know what it is, but uh, get a group of people together, think about it and uh, find some way of maybe creating some 
some mobilization or uh, some education resources against war. That's my Magnificast homework. I've never given any out on this podcast. And for the first time, that's it. We all have a good assignment. I'm going to do it myself. Uh, we'll all think of a way of confronting our own home country's participation in war because uh, peace is global because war is global. That's my my big slogan at the end. A good slogan. Put it on a sticker. <laughs> Put it on a sticker. That will be uh, our, our extremely small contribution. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. If you support us there, you get access to our cool Discord group chat where we talk about all kinds of great and nice things. Uh, we have a channel for pets now, and I think that's really uplifting. Everyone's posting their cute pets, and I love them. I love them all, and I want to give them a good smooch on the forehead. The pets, not the people posting. I'm, I'm sure they're great, too, but they, I want to kiss your pets is what I'm here to say. After COVID. After COVID, let me come to your house and kiss your pets. All right. Uh, you can also get things like stickers or whatever, but that's not important. Not as important as me kissing those cats you got. Um, okay. You can also give us a review on iTunes or any other podcasting platform. We'd appreciate it. I haven't looked in a long time to see if we have any new ones. And I'm sure there's a lot of them out there. We used to read them at the beginning of every episode, but we're not doing that anymore. Um, so <laughs> so leave one, but I won't ever read it. I'm um, just kidding. I will eventually. Uh, cool. Our intro music is by Amaria Armstrong. Our outro music is by The Logical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no damn between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up you Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, keep your hoods up Well, you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. At least I would else, 